from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. Chapter 3, verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. Thank you for your patience this morning. Thank you for <laughs> being here. I appreciate it very much. John chapter 3, verse 22. And we're going to finish up John chapter 3 this morning. I hope, I, I hope. This will only come as a surprise to me. None of you are surprised. We are already off my sermon schedule for John. Um, um, I'm, I'm the only one that that still shocks. Uh, I, I know that y'all are not, but it does shock me. And as we come to John chapter 3 this morning, we're coming to a section that is super easy to overlook. All right, because John 3, 22 down to verse 36 is sandwiched in between two very well-known stories. The first one is the story of Nicodemus, right? That we, we talked about that, and that story is so well-known. And are you paying attention? It's so well-known because all I have to say is, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Very good. So it's sandwiched in between John 3.16 and then John chapter 4, which is Jesus and His disciples meeting the woman at the well as they are traveling through Samaria. So you've got two huge stories. And what usually happens when you have two huge stories like that, what is in the middle is, is completely and totally lost. Yet this section is, is really important, and there's a lot of information here, there's a lot of theology here, as John, the Gospel writer, brings back John the witness. Now remember, we talked about this. John's role, who we call John the Baptist, in the role of the Gospel of John, is not so much that he baptizes as much as he is a witness. He is the first witness that is introduced in the Gospel of John to testify to who Jesus is. And in this section, as John is speaking, the last words of John recorded in the Gospel of John is John saying that Jesus must increase and He must decrease. And the reason that Jesus must increase and the reason John must decrease is because Jesus is superior. It's just that simple. And in these verses, John the Gospel writer shows us why Jesus is superior. This is what he writes, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Solomon, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. 
The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to all the earth and he and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son shall have eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So this morning, as, as we go through this, I just want you to note three things to kind of frame, frame our study. And the first one is this. Jesus is superior because of His baptism. It starts off and it says, after this, after what? After His, his conversation with Nicodemus that took place in Jerusalem. So after this, after Jesus went to the temple and cleansed the temple, after this, they go into the countryside. They remain in the region of Judea. Jerusalem is in Judea. Think of Judea as the county, Jerusalem as the city, but a little bit, Judea being a little bit larger than um, a, a county. And Jesus and his disciples travel basically out of the city into the wilderness. Now, we need to remember their wilderness is very different than ours. Right? I mean, we might call Hanging Rock the wilderness, and it is, but it's a very pleasant wilderness, right? I mean, it's got nice little trails, it's got shade trees, it's got a nice lake that you can sit by. It's wilderness, but it's a nice wilderness, right? This, this was not it, okay? Remember, this is a arid land, this is desert, this is rocks, this is someplace you don't want to be caught in the wilderness. Get caught in the wilderness up at Hanging Rock, you're probably going to be fine. You'll make your way back to a parking lot. The park ranger will find you. Get lost in the wilderness of Judea? Not so much. There's no water. There's no shade. There's nothing. It's, it's a dangerous place. Yet Jesus and his disciples journey out into the wilderness. And as they go out into the wilderness, we're told that he was baptizing. He remained there and was baptizing. Now, this is really important. Look at John chapter 4, verse 2, really quick. Because we need to understand this. Throughout the Gospel of John, John gives us these parenthetical statements to help us reconcile some things. He says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. And that's important. Because in John chapter 3, Jesus is not baptizing. It is just his disciples. But they are baptizing under his authority. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what would have happened if Jesus actually baptized some of the early disciples? Right? I mean, let's think about it. If you were baptized by Jesus, and because I can just pick on people, let's imagine that 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 Ricky was baptized by Jesus and Greg was baptized by me. Who's going to think they got the better end of the deal? That's right. I mean, let's let's be honest. Right? Let's, let's, let's understand it. Well, the same thing would be true. There is going to be a bunch of people going out, Jesus baptized me, but you were baptized by John the Baptist, or you were baptized by Peter, so you don't count. 
right? I mean, you, you automatically get like, what, like 50, 100 more, look at how holy I am points. I mean, right? So it's important for us to know. I mean, that's important to know. Jesus isn't the one baptizing. It's His disciples. Now, nearby, John the Baptist was also baptizing. And I like this little note that, that, that John puts in here, because the water was plentiful. Can I just say it, it's, it's very helpful to have plenty of water when you baptize people? <laughs> there's, there's a reason when we, we baptize somebody, we, 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 we put a lot of water in, in that baptistry. <laughs> it, it helps you come back up, <laughs> right? It, it, it just, it's, it's just easier. But I, I, just, I just like it there because John, John's like, we got more. <laughs> I, got, I got more water. Now it's going to come into play in, in just a minute. And again, John gives us another parenthetical because we know from the other Gospels that John the Baptist has been arrested. He hasn't been arrested yet. So he is still ministering. At the same time that he is ministering and he is preaching, Jesus is preaching as well. And they're baptizing. Which should lead us to ask a very interesting question. What type of baptism is this? Right? We have an idea of baptism. We understand baptism one way. We go to this baptistry behind us. We imagine it filled with water. We see me in there. Someone comes down to be baptized. I look at the person and says, have you professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? They say yes. And then I say, "Then upon your profession of Christ as your Lord and Savior, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Sick them under the water. All things go well. They come back up. Right? That's, that's what we think of as baptism. Now let me ask you a question. Think, think through this. Do you think this is the type of baptism? Because we have a couple issues. The Holy Spirit yet has not yet been given. Right? So we don't have baptize you in the name of the Holy Spirit just yet. Also, Jesus hasn't given the command. Hasn't given the Great Commission. Go therefore to all the nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We don't have that yet. We're still year, you know, year one, couple months into Jesus' ministry here. All of that's going to come later. Okay. What kind of baptism is it then? Because they're baptizing. There, there, there has to be a reason for this. Look down at verse 25, because John has given us the answers. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. This is more than a discussion and less than an argument. Theological debate, if you want to call it that. And it's about purification. And as you hear that word purification, some things should start spinning in your mind, especially as we've gone through the Gospel of John. Right? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the purification rites of Israel. They lived in a constant state of whether they are clean or unclean. And remember we said the default position is unclean. The question is not how do I become unclean. The question is always how do I become clean? What needs to happen for the uncleanliness to be removed from me? And you go to the Old Testament and you see several prescriptions. There's a sacrifice. 
You have to take off your clothes. You have to burn your clothes. You have to clean your house. You have to, there are ways that you move from the unclean camp to the clean camp, but what happened? What did we say? Didn't matter when you got to the unclean camp, you always ended back up in the unclean. You don't remain in the clean camp. And one of the ways to move from the unclean to the clean was to be washed. Could be your hands. It could be where the sore on your skin was. It could be your entire body needed to be washed to go back to the state of being clean. Now, at the beginning of John chapter 1, John is baptizing. The Pharisees confront him about his baptism. John's actions had to be something, right, that would be understandable to the Jew of the day. They had to recognize what he was doing and be able to associate it with something that they had been taught. Otherwise, they wouldn't go to him. Otherwise, the Pharisees aren't going to probably really bother him. We are also told when we looked at the wedding in Cana, right, that when John called our attention to the water pots, he said that they were stone jars containing what? Water for the Jewish rites of purification. The baptism that Jesus is engaging in, the baptism that John is engaging in, is a baptism of repentance that is tied to purification. Okay, it, it is... It is Part of the law, but at the same time, it is outside of the official adherence to the requirements of the law. John is in the wilderness preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is near. From the other Gospels, we are told when Jesus comes on and he starts preaching, he preaches what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So these, these ministries are the same, and they're preaching the same message. And what is happening is people are hearing the message, the call to repent, the call to be cleansed, and are going to hear John and Jesus preach this message. And as we talk about repentance, we need to remember that repentance is not an emotion. Okay? It's, it's good if you feel bad about your sins. Uh, one of the things I think as a society we have completely lost is any sense of guilt and shame. There, there is biblical guilt and biblical shame is a good thing. It is not a bad thing. We have been told to, to avoid shame at all, all costs. Don't, don't let anybody shame you. Folks, there are some things we need to be ashamed of. There are some things we need to feel guilty of. But what we need to feel ashamed of and what we need to feel guilty of needs to be shame and guilt that comes from God's Word, not from the world. The people are hearing John and Jesus preach, repent, and they are feeling that guilt, they are feeling that shame, that they are unclean, that they want to turn from their sins. And that's what repent means. Repent means to change direction. It means to do a U-turn. You're heading down the road and you realize, I'm going the wrong direction because I, I, I want to go to, to Pilot Mountain and I am going south on 52 and I'm going to end up in Lexington a whole lot sooner than I'm going to end up in Pilot Mountain. Somewhere you need to do a U-turn to go back north. 
That's the same thing with repentance. You're going down the road to sin, you're going down the road to condemnation, and you realize, I need to change my direction because if I keep going this way, as John has said, I already stand condemned. I know where it's going to end. I need to turn around and go the other way. That's what repentance is. So people are hearing this. I mean, if you want to think of it, Jesus and, and, and John out in the wilderness, they're having a tent revival meeting. And people are going to hear them preach because they know that they're unclean. They know that they're unclean. And they want to be cleansed from their sins. They have a desire to be cleansed. Now, we know this. You, you you can argue with me if you want to, and I will argue back because I like to do that. I firmly believe, and I think you can, Scripture proves it conclusively, that people know when they sin. They, they know it, but they suppress the truth of it. They've been told to suppress the truth of it. Yet people still know. People know that they are sinners. And that is a common grace given by God that we all know that we are sinners. It sounds harsh, but it's actually a, a, a thing of grace because we recognize that we are sinners. And then Jesus says, hey, this is the solution. You come to me through faith. It's a, it's, it's a thing of grace to understand that, to have that truth inside of us. They are repenting. They are entering into the waters to be baptized, to be washed of the sins, but there's a problem. What's the problem? The problem is they're going to come out of the waters. They're going to go about their life and they're going to sin again. So when John is preaching next week, when Jesus is preaching next week, come repent and be baptized, they know what they've done in that week. They've got to go and be baptized again. They've got to go and move back from unclean to clean. They can't stay in a clean state. So this is going to continue, is it not, until God does something where the legal requirements of the law are fulfilled. To where there doesn't need to be a constant washing to be moved from clean or from unclean to clean. Something needs to happen where a sacrifice is made that will clean people from their sins once for all times. Sound familiar? It should. Because we know that that's going to happen in Jesus. Go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 spell it out very clearly. And so what's going to happen is the Jewish baptism of repentance and cleansing is pointing forward to a time to come where ritual washings would no longer be needed. A time when sins aren't just washed away, but where sins are completely taken away. There's going to be a time in the future when Jesus gives the, the Holy Spirit is sent, when Jesus gives the command to go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, where we are going to enter into the baptism waters, not as a means of repentance, not as a means of ritual washing to make us clean, but as the outward testimony 
that we have been saved by faith through grace because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that He made on the cross for our sins. That's why you're only baptized once. That's why you're baptized after you are saved. And this is pointing forward to what is going to happen. Right? And people are responding to the message that Jesus is preaching, right? You got what's going to happen? You got two ministries going on in the same location, preaching the same message, right? Jesus doesn't tell John to stop, and John continues to preach. What do you think is going to happen? Yep, some tension arises, right? Look, look down in, in verse twenty-six. Rabbi, he who you bore witness with. Uh, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Hey, hey, John, we got a problem. Our numbers are down. Our, our, our annual church profile isn't going to look as good. Right? These are the disciples talking to John. We, we, we got to do something about this. They say all are going to him. And the word all there, all are going, what it is implying is a continual. They, they keep going. They used to come to us. We used to have, you know, we used to have the corner on this ministry. And look, we got plenty of water here, right? Again, that little comment, we got plenty of, our waters are beautiful, right? I, I, now, I, I got to give it, you know, people baptizing in the Jordan. Y'all ever seen the Jordan River? You got to really want to be baptized to be baptized in the Jordan River. It, it ain't the cleanest thing, right? John's like, we got clean waters. We got a lot of them. Come be baptized with us. And and the disciples are going, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Why are they all going to Jesus? Anybody want to answer that question for me? Why are they all going to Jesus? Because there's something qualitatively different. Even though Jesus is preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and John is preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at his hand, there's something qualitatively different in Jesus' message. And it's probably because Jesus is the one, who is the Lamb of God, who is, going, who is sent to take away the sins of the world. Because it is in His name that we will be baptized. Not in John's. So Jesus is bringing a superior baptism because we no longer need that ritual cleansing of sins. Because when we come to Him as Lord and Savior, He washes us white as snow and we are baptized only once as an outward demonstration of our faith. So John's response then to His disciples shows us the second point, and that is this. Jesus is superior because He is the groom. John is not jealous. It would be really easy for John to get all sulky about it and what is happening. And hey, right, let, let's, let's understand. Let's, we, we always think of ourselves, I, I do, y'all don't. I always think of myself as more holy than everybody else, right? Because I'm going to read this and I'm like, well, if I was John, I wouldn't get jealous either. It, 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 wouldn't, bother, it wouldn't bother me none. Call me tomorrow about 1.30. And check on me to make sure that that's still true tomorrow. And you'll get Preacher Gary. Preacher Gary Mondays are bad. Preacher Mondays are always bad. Everything is sulky. Everything is wrong. My, my, my baptism waters aren't as clean as Jesus. You know, 
you, you know, we, we like to think that we wouldn't, but we do. Yet John does not. John does not because John understands his role. Right? Even Matthew 11, verse 1, right? It says that among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. That's, that's pretty impressive. But he knows his role. And he knows his role is to point people to Jesus. And so he looks at his disciples in verse 27 says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. It's like, look, everything that's going on has been given to Jesus from heaven. So you, you know that that is what is happening. But also he says, look, verse 28, I've, I've told you, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not He. But I am the one that has been sent before Him. And then He tells His disciples an analogy or a metaphor or whatever that would help them understand that. All of us here this morning, we've been to a wedding. Right? Everybody has. And even though the weddings are getting different, I know that everything isn't set in stone as it used to be. It's, it's still fairly standard. And when we go to a wedding today, what usually happens, the, the first people that come into the ceremony is usually uh, whoever is presiding over it, the groom, and the best man, right? Typically speaking, if it's here at Red Bank, I usually come out that door with the groom and the best man. We come, we stand right here. The rest of the wedding party comes, and the, the second to last person is, is usually, if, if there's, just go with me. Second to last person is usually the maid or matron of honor, and the very last person is the bride. Right? The bride comes down. So I'm standing here. Groom is here. Bride is here. Best man is here. Maid, matron of honor, right here. Everybody else in the wedding party is out to the sides, right? Now, th th this is important, okay? So just stay with me. I'm not just telling you how I do weddings. Think about the placement of the best man and the maid of honor. What historically has been their role in the weddings? Anybody want to take a guess? Anyone? Uh, well, they do, but that's not it, right? The, 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 the maid of honor gets over here and she, she fluffs the train and takes the flowers, holds the ring. The best man just stands over here, really grins, and doesn't leave, lose the ring. But that's not it. That is not it. They stand the closest to the bride and to the groom because as the vows are exchanged, they are living witnesses that the vows were given correctly and that the covenant of marriage was entered into correctly. That was their role. They served as the living witnesses that everything that the, the, the presiding official said and everything that the bride and groom said was said correctly. And you still see this today. You just don't know that you see it. How many of you, and, and the answer is all of you, when you got married, had to sign a marriage certificate? 
At the bottom of the marriage certificate, there are two additional signatures. What are those signatures? Witnesses. How many? Two. Typically, historically, it has been one witness from the groom's side and one witness from the bride's side. Not always the best man. Okay, not always the maid of honor. But you understand Right? We, isn't it amazing how many customs we have that we, we go through that we just we don't know why we go through them, but they actually make sense? So this is, this is what John is saying. He says to them, look, verse 28, I'm not the Christ, I've sent before him. Then verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. That is John saying, look, I've heard. I am bearing witness. I am the living witness that he is who he says he is. I'm just a voice. Jesus is the word. I'm a witness to the light. Jesus is the light. I baptize with water. Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I come before Him, just like the, 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 the best man comes in, I come before Him foreshadowing the fact that He is going to come. That He is the rightful groom. And when the groom arrives, how weird would it look with the groom here and the best man here, when the the bride comes down the aisle, if the bride goes and stands beside the best man. Boy, that'd be a viral video in today's world, wouldn't it? Can you believe what the bride did? Groom left speechless at the altar. Story at six. Right. So John looks at him and says, look, it only makes sense that the people are going... Now, who are the people? What is this foreshadowing? It's foreshadowing the church going to the groom. Because as the people, again, they're, they're hearing Jesus preach. They know His message is different. They're going to Him because He is the one who has the message. He is the Word. He is the light. He is God incarnate. And John says to his disciples, look, I'm excited. I'm happy. I get to stand and and I get to hear Him. And and I get to point to Him and say, He is the one. Go and follow Him. Because He must increase and I must decrease. And that's an amazing testimony. The last words of John in the Gospel of John is he must increase and I must decrease. And from the rest of the Gospel on, it is Jesus as he increases in his ministry, as he increases as he goes towards the cross. And John disappears from the pages of John's Gospel. So all of this is transpiring. All of this is happening. And at this point, in verse 31, 
John, the gospel writer, picks back up his pen and he ties everything together. And he says, look, I just, y'all need to understand that Jesus is superior because he is the Messiah. Because he is the Messiah. Look, when you, when you read 31 through 36, you see Jesus presented as superior in, in, in so many ways. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And, and he bears witness to what has been seen and heard. Receives his testimony, sets his seal. God is true. God utters these words. He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, given all things into his hand. John, the gospel writer, as a way of closing out this story with Nicodemus and, and John the Baptist and, and the temple cleansing, is coming back and saying, look, everything that John the witness, the baptizer just said, it's true because as John kept saying, he's the Messiah and that makes him superior. He's superior because of his baptism. He's superior because he is the groom. He is just superior because he is the Messiah. And you go down through here and, and you can look at all these ways. Like he, he is superior because he comes from heaven. If you come from earth, then, then, then you are from earth. And that automatically limits by design your knowledge. And John's knowledge is limited, but Jesus' knowledge is not. He is not bound by earthly limitations. He is superior because He comes from heaven. He is superior because Jesus Himself is a witness. He's a witness to God the Father and what Jesus hears, what has been said in heaven. And so when He comes and speaks, He speaks the very words of God because He is God and He was in heaven with God. So everything that he says is true and will not lead you astray. He, he, he is superior because of his assurance. And he comes and look at where it says, it sets his seal on them in verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. So we come to Christ and, and, and we know that he is the Savior and, and, and we're sealed in that. Right, a, a seal, old seals uh, had the wax seal that would testify to the ownership and the authenticity of the sender. So those who receive the message, those who receive his testimony, what it's basically saying is that, that yes, we're, we're serving now as a living seal to the fact that God is true and he's done what he said he was doing. He's superior because of his giving. God gives, it says here, God gives uh, Jesus the Holy Spirit without measure. We know later that the Holy Spirit will be sent to us. And while we will not receive the Holy Spirit without measure, we are far above the saints in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit would come and, and, and would be sporadic and limited in duration now that we have the Holy Spirit with us for all our lives to lead us and guide us. We get the Holy Spirit not in fullness and complete measure, but in abundant measure that we need. Jesus as Messiah is superior because He, because of His mission. Everything has given, God has given the Son all things into His hands. All things. Including what? Including redemption. Including the ability to save. Well, I mean, what better way could John summarize all that has been written? 
to say, look, Jesus can do all these things. Jesus can turn the water into wine because He is superior. Jesus can clean out the temple because He is superior. Jesus can look at Nicodemus and say, you must be born again because He is superior. He is superior with His baptism. He is superior because He is the groom. He is, he is just superior because He is the Messiah. God stepping out of the heavens onto the earth. And it is in His superiority that if you believe the Son you will have eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see the life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you reject the message of the Messiah, then the condemnation will remain on you. And it will remain on you until the day that you die. And at that time, it will be sealed on you forever. Yet once again, John doesn't end there. He says there is a way to escape this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That escape is found on the cross where Jesus Christ died for our sins. Using the wedding metaphor, it is on the cross that the vows between the bride and the bridegroom were exchanged. And it is as Jesus hangs on the cross that we understand, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Because Jesus is the Messiah and has the ability to grant that. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.